It's good to see everybody. So here's the deal, ground rules for this sermon today. I don't have a long time, but it's a big message. There are a lot of big ideas here that have captured me for a long time. Don't think I've ever presented all of them in quite this form. So I'm going to need a lot of grace from you this morning, and I'm also going to need you to work with me. 8.30 service, are you ready to work with me? Roll up your sleeves. We're going to go to work. I'm not saying it's going to be a great message. I'm saying it's a big one. It could, most of my messages feel like that, actually. They always feel like, you know, it's going to go really well or really poorly. There is no in-between. Like, it rises or it crashes altogether, and we'll see what happens with this one. But let's do, um, just pray for God's grace, uh, especially on this time now. Lord, we are grateful to come together, submitting to you as, as the only real teacher. Your Spirit's the only real teacher, and we're very aware of that, that... Um, there's no way that we can comprehend anything unless you reveal yourself to us, unless you reveal your words to us, unless you reveal your heart to us. So we pray today as we um, get in matters that are way too deep for me, way too deep for us, uh, we just ask for illumination, we ask for revelation, we ask for eyes that can see, ears that can hear. pray for clarity, we pray for discernment. And I pray maybe especially today that as we get into some um, prickly territory, as we get into some things that are uh, complex and nuanced and um, even touching on some things that especially right now in culture uh, where there seem to just be some raw nerves, some raw nerves in us, we just pray that we would be sensitive and open to your spirit, even in those things, that our defenses would be down enough for you to kind of uh, sneak in, Lord, and, and, and whatever entry you need to use, we, we want you to have room to work inside of us. So we just invite you now, Spirit, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Mark chapter 8 is where we're going, beginning with verse 27. This is um, such a fascinating text uh, to me where we have Two sort of mini-stories right back together, um, where in both of them, the central figures are Jesus and Peter. And it never dawned on me, I mean, I'm preaching the lectionary as I do, never dawned on me before quite um, the juxtaposition between these two and how comical this is. I think you'll see what I mean. We'll just get right in the text. Verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples... Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? And I want you to really feel the weight of this verse, because keep in mind that what Peter's about to say here, no one else has said before. Peter, who always becomes the mascot for our humanity, and our flawed, weak, whatever. We love Peter for that reason. Um, We also forget that there are many times where Peter gets it right when nobody else gets it right. And Peter sees it clear when nobody else sees it clear. And so in a moment in history where no one else in record in Scripture has declared who Jesus is, especially Mark, there's this whole thing where the identity of the real identity of Jesus is so hidden from so many. Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. Peter grasped when so many of the other disciples and followers are still struggling to know what to do. Peter understands who Jesus is in a way that's unique. And when he says this, 
Jesus, in verse 30, sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. This is such a beautiful moment for Peter. I love that Peter gets it right. Uh, I know we have a parallel text in the Gospels where Jesus, of course, tells Peter that flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Simon, son of Jonah, but only my father, only the spirit. I mean, it's, you know, Peter really gets it right. Gold star, that's awesome. Which is what's great that then it goes right into this in verse 31. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. He said all this quite openly. So now Jesus, on the heels of Peter affirming that he is the Messiah, recognizing that he is the holy and anointed one, is trying to to teach in a way that will foretell his death and resurrection. And Peter, on the heels of just getting it right, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. This is not a great idea, to try to rebuke Jesus. And yet I so see myself in this story because this is exactly how I am. If I get one thing right, boom, I can be all humble and all like, you know, scum of the earth and I'm so terrible, have one good moment and all of a sudden I'm a prophet. I'm a man of God. I can do no wrong. (laughs) One stinking good moment after dragging the floor and all of a sudden I think I'm Superman. Peter, who's just said the really spiritual, wise, discerning thing that everybody affirms, is now feeling so good about himself, so confident in his discernment. Can I stress this one more time, because I think it's important in context of this message, that what Peter had just said was not just right, but it was dramatically right, not just wise, but like crazy wise. It was insightful. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. Peter got this part so right. And in the very next verse, as Jesus is trying to explain these things about the suffering he's about to endure, now Peter feels so good because he was right about something else. He thinks he's right about everything. And now he thinks he can rebuke Jesus. And Jesus, very gently, turning and looking at his disciples, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Ow. There are more verses in the lectionary text, but I really want to stop there. This is so brilliant to me, that Peter goes from being the first person to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah and the anointed one, says it out loud, all props to Peter. Moments later, Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. What's going on there? How is it possible to move from a moment of such illumination, such insight, such wisdom, and then in the very next breath, start rebuking Jesus, and Jesus be so, I don't think it's out of irritation, but you know, for Jesus to speak so sternly as to say, get behind me, Satan. Like, how does that even happen, right? On one hand, I think it makes a lot of sense, because once again, ego gets puffed up, and we very quickly have to be taken back down. But beyond all that, I'm really fascinated by the fact that Jesus' language here is get behind me, Satan. I mean, could we maybe agree that this is a little strong? (laughs) Satan, not get behind me, dumb whatever, not get behind me, you jerk, you know, get behind me, Satan. And I know the quick move there is to kind of spiritual. Is that way he's talking to Satan or Satan and Peter? I don't know. It's like that's what makes it so weird, right? I mean, he turns and looks at Peter to say, get behind me, Satan. So what exactly is happening here? 
I've never heard anybody say about this text, of course I don't think a lot of people deal with this text actually, but I've never heard anybody conjecture that in that moment that Satan physically entered Peter and it was like the exorcist, it was some sort of demonic possession where the demon is now being exercised. I don't think anybody really thinks that, right? So Satan didn't physically somehow take him over and yet the language here is that Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Why, why does Jesus speak this strongly? What does it mean? Well, on one level, and this is a lot I could say about this, but it's just not really the point of this message in particular. Part of what's happening here is that Peter is, however well-intentioned, however well-meaning, what he's saying um, is deeply disruptive and distracting to the way of the kingdom. It has always been the case that well-meaning, well-intentioned people who want to follow Jesus and love Jesus and want to do the right thing are prone to miss some of the biggest stuff. And the thing we're most often um, able to miss, even though it's hidden kind of in plain sight, is that the way of the kingdom and the way of the cross always involves humility and suffering. No one wants that to be true. Everybody wants to think there is a path towards love and compassion and wholeness in a life with God that doesn't require the cross. Nobody wants that to be true. Peter didn't want that to be true for Jesus. Peter didn't want that to be true for Peter. Peter doesn't like that this is the way of the kingdom. So however well-intentioned he might be, what he's saying is really disruptive because this is the fundamental way of the kingdom. And, and, and Jesus speaks to this so strongly. Get behind me, Satan. You're not concerned about the, the things of God here. You're concerned about the things of man. So it's this really, really stern rebuke. And I can't even imagine what it's like for Peter in this moment to go from, actually I can because I've been there too, mountaintop, feeling so great, God just used me, I'm so smart, I'm so good, I'm so pretty, to Jesus just called me Satan, right? This is a fairly big dip. So really what I want to do for a few minutes in kind of a weird way maybe is I want to talk a little bit about Satan which I don't think I've done in a long time quite like this. Talk a little bit about Satan. Satan is such a, an interesting figure in Scripture. Um, a lot I could say about this. Maybe I will say first, I do believe in Satan. I do believe in the devil, which is a way of saying, I believe that there is a force of evil at work in the world that's greater than the sum of its parts. So I believe in Satan, Having said that, I will give this weird disclaimer in that I think it's important to maintain that Satan does not exist in the way that God exists or even in the way that you and I exist. There's this witness throughout the history of the church, Thomas Aquinas and others articulated it this way, that evil can only exist as a parasite to the good. You know, So I think there is something shadowy and mysterious about the existence of this Satan, of this devil, because again, anything that's evil only exists as a parasite to the good. So it's kind of, it kind of clings on, but it, there's a way that does it have being in the way that we have being. Uh, when you really pay attention to it, you know, the, the, the narrative of Satan throughout Scripture unfolds in kind of an interesting way, because in the Old Testament, we don't really get a lot about Satan. You really don't. Uh, a lot of people, you know, will tell the Garden of Eden story and talk about the serpent as Satan or the devil, but that move is not made explicitly in the text in Genesis. The first appearance of the devil at proper in Scripture that is clear and unambiguous is in the book of Job. And it is in this book, of course, where it describes Satan as the one who's going about coming in and out of the presence of God, bringing accusation 
against God's people, bring accusation against good people. And that's what he does for, against Job. And I, I think it's really important that you get this because I don't hear a lot of teaching on this. Please understand that in Scripture, Satan is not, it's not a, a name. It's not a surname, right? It, it's not the devil's name. Satan is a title. Now think about this. It is not a name. It is a title. Satan literally in Hebrew is the accuser. That's all it means. It is an office that he occupies. It is a role that he plays, and the role that he plays is of the accuser. That's the very first thing we get about Satan, is that whatever this force of evil is, whatever it looks like, however it is manifest, at the core of this reality of evil is accusation, which I think is really weird for a lot of Christians to hear because we always think that Satan is the ultimate naughty person going around trying to cause people to do naughty things. That might well be true. But at the heart of the reality of what Satan is, is accusation, blame, and scapegoating. That's the job of the devil. In the same way that the New Testament says that God is love. God is not just loving. That would be an attribute of God. God is love itself. In the same way that God is love. Accusation is not just something that Satan does. Accusation is who Satan is and what Satan is. Accusation is literally at the core of his being. Satan is the one who accuses, blames, points the finger, scapegoats. Y'all tracking with me so far? So far? That's, where we get about, that, that's what we get about Satan in Scripture. So to kind of bring some of this around a little bit full circle... I think that as this shadowy figure goes about in the earth trying to disrupt and thwart the plans of God through primarily through accusation, Satan, because he doesn't have being in and of himself, is only manifest when he's attached to a person. Satan manifests through people. So we get that through the New Testament. As over and over again, we see where Jesus casts demons out of people. We get these accounts that the way that the devil shows up is somehow through humans, somehow through human behavior. This is how this kind of evil gets personified. And why Jesus in this moment turns to Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. Now in this particular context, in that text, what's happening again is that Peter is, is attempting to, um, again, unintentionally circumvent the way of God and the way of the kingdom and the way of the cross. So in that way, it's um, to, to distract from the central mission, from the focus of the heart of Jesus. Now I am convinced more broadly speaking that because Satan is the accuser, and that is his very identity to the core, that the primary way that evil gets manifested through people, and once again, this is going to sound super strange, and you're, a lot of you think I'm just pulling this out of my butt or whatever, um, but I really do believe, right, that the primary way that Satan is manifest even now is through accusation through us. That's how the devil shows up, because he once again is the accuser. If you want to know where Satan is, listen for accusation. If you want to know where Satan is, all you have to do is read your Facebook page and you're going to see through that news feed where other people are accusing others and blaming them and acting as if they are the Satan while they play the Satan precisely in that process of pointing the finger and scapegoating the blame. Anybody hear what I just said? And you don't believe me. No one ever believes me about this. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying it's the heart of all evil. Note the lack of nuance. It's at the heart of all evil. Because, because, going all the way back to the garden, the root of all human sin is pride. 
the, the idea is not that Adam and Eve partake of the evil tree. They partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil. Playing judge. Having a sense of rightness and righteousness that does not require God. Instead of living in humility and dependence on God, stepping into a kind of knowledge that is too much for us. Taking God's job. God is infinitely merciful. God will forgive anything. God will forgive anybody. Forgiveness is never an issue with God. It's always easy for God to forgive sin. The problem is, the hardest thing to get through is not the hot sins that we think of and that we would label as the most explicit and worst, but the really hard thing to deal with is judgment, accusation, and blame. Because the only time and place when we're in a posture where we're not able to really receive God's grace is when we're playing God. You can't need God while you're playing God. Anybody hear what I'm saying? You can't need God while you're playing God. And while I am blaming someone else, while I am accusing someone else, while I am directing my angst, my anxiety, my fear, while I'm projecting onto that onto another human being, then I'm incapable of living in a way that's humble and open and receptive to God's mercy and God's grace. This is why over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus is harder on the scribes and Pharisees than he is anyone else. This is why he often uses Satan language and devil language when he's talking to them. Because accusation is at the heart of devilish religion. He's not using this kind of harsh rhetoric to ordinary sinners who do the random bad stuff that humans do. He uses on people who are so convinced through a religious system that they know who's in and who's out, who's up and who's down, right? They are, in that sense, partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They are playing God. And playing God is the truly dangerous sin because so long as I'm playing God, once again, accusation has such force behind it. Accusation has such demonic energy behind it that when I'm engaged in that process, I'm blind to my own sins and faults and failures. I can't see myself rightly in the mirror so long as I'm walking in any form of blame or accusation. Everything gets wildly distorted. Everything gets out of proportion when I'm walking in that place because it alters our vision. I'm just realizing this is such a big message. I'm trying to do so much and I'm realizing just how out of time I am. I mean, like I'm not out of time yet, but I'm like, I'm taking too long. You hear what I'm saying? This is one of those times where all three messages are gonna come out completely different, I can already tell. I, I'm, I don't mean to overplay a point, but I just want you to see the movement one more time, that it's very possible, right, for someone who is godly, um, sincere, well-meaning, and well-intentioned to, in a moment of time, to go from, good job, Peter, you call Jesus Messiah, and you are right, no one else has seen this the way that you have, to acting out in a satanic way, which gets really confusing, right, especially when people who we love and honor in the church, someone who led us to Jesus, someone who we know loves Jesus, someone who we know wants to build the kingdom of God, someone that we know there's good in them and good in their hearts. When they start playing the role of the Satan, it's real confusing because we're saying, but they were right about this other thing. But see, just because you were right about one thing doesn't mean you're right about everything. And it really is possible to go in a skinny minute from being in a humble, good, righteous place to stepping into the role of the accuser. It happens so quickly. There's so much more I want to say. I'm not trying to experiment on you, 830. This is like the, 
This is just the raw version. But okay, let me, let me try it this way, right? And whether you believe me or not, this, this is what I really believe. Right now in our culture, in North America in particular, we've just never been angrier. We've never been angrier than we are right now. Everybody's angry. There's no central news anymore. Everybody's kind of polarized. Everybody's always yelling at each other. So much anger in the atmosphere. And it's interesting just how quickly that vein gets tapped into. I wish that I could travel somewhere else for all of 2016 and just skip it. Because during an election cycle, it is the absolute worst. It is the absolute worst. And people that you think of as being sane, rational, they love Jesus. They bless Jesus. They praise Jesus. Good people. Give the shirt off their back for somebody in need. And you think, why the hell are they saying things like this now? What has happened? What has possessed them? Well, Satan. (laughs) Satan. (laughs) I mean, this really is the devil at work. And and this scapegoating and this blame, which in a polarized two-party system is kind of all we do all the time. And and I think we see it most at work in politics, so that's kind of an easy target, right? But it's not just about politics. It applies in every area of our life, in all areas of our relationships. We're always being tempted to fall into a rut of accusation and blame and playing God in a way that insulates us from the grace and mercy of God. This is happening to us all the time. Politics just makes it conspicuous. And what I find happening like in times like these when everybody's really polarized, if you are a spiritually discerning person, and I hope I'm not saying this like if you're smart, you get this message. I don't mean it that way. But if you are a spiritually discerning person, something in you knows that what's out there in times like these is not right or good, even when people seem to be saying things that you agree with, you agree with lots of it, Well, they called Jesus Lord. They said some good things. But something doesn't feel right. Something doesn't settle right. And the more that you immerse yourself in all of that debate and in all of that clamor and all of that finger pointing and accusation, something in you is just not at rest. And you go around wondering, why am I anxious all the time? Why am I in knots all the time? And doesn't it beg like the basic question, is, is that ever the fruit of the Spirit that does that to us? Is it ever the fruit? Is it ever God that gets us in angst and anxiety and going around riled up? That doesn't sound like God's work. That sounds like the devil's work. And yet so often it's how we live. It changes the temperature in the room so quickly. And it's very difficult to distinguish the voice of the accuser because blame is... Blame is a powerful thing. Blame has a kind of religious fervor behind it, you know? It feels really good to be right. Forget cocaine or heroin. There is no drug more dangerous than being right. There is nothing that feels better, and you can get that hit as often as you want. That sense of being the right one over and against all the stupid people. And so long as we have a scapegoat, so long as we have somebody or some group of somebodies to blame for all of our issues... We feel clean, we feel whole, we feel sanctified. And whoever is on that list of people that we blame and scapegoat, well, that just changes every day depending on the person. For some folks, fundamentalist Christians are everything that's wrong with the world. And if we could just deal with these fundamentalist Christians and their zeal and their bigotry, the world would be a wonderful place. For some folks, homosexuals are to blame for everything. Three to four percent of the population. And if you stubbed your toe in the middle of the night, it's, it's the fault of someone gay. 
For some people, it is immigrants. If we could deport the right people, if we could excommunicate the right people. For some people, it's Muslims. If we could name the right, if we name the right group, label the right group, and especially when that's in a corporate setting, it has real power to it. The crowd so quickly goes from Hosanna, Hosanna to Jesus to crucify him, crucify him. Because scapegoating and blame is always a powerful thing. And what I realize, as I know I'm taking way too much time once again in just this part, is that I'm coming against a lot right here. Because what I'm saying is not nearly as sexy as accusation. It feels way better to be the one who's on the right side, to have the us versus them, to have the white hat while somebody else is wearing the black hat. That feels so much better than anything I'm talking about now, you know? It really does. It really does. And people think I'm clueless. But there, there really is the sense, I think, that as we engage and indulge in that kind of energy, and as we begin to spread that to others, this is so random, but I saw a movie all the way back in 1997 in the theater. It wasn't even a great movie. With Denzel Washington called Fallen. Did anybody see this movie? Anybody remember Fallen? No one. No one in the room. <laughs> because I watch ungodly movies. Like two people. Thank you for that. Okay. Here's the premise in a nutshell. Denzel Washington's a cop, serial killer in the beginning of the movie that he captured, gets electrocuted. When he does, the demon inside of him gets loose in the world, and it's now coming back and trying to attack him through other people. And the central conceit of the movie is that the demon is moving from one person to the next. You know this, and this is still actually kind of creepy to me. In the film, when the guy is dying, and when he's frying in the electric chair, he's singing the Rolling Stones song, Time is on Our Side. So then Denzel Washington could be walking down the street, and all of a sudden, someone to the right starts singing, time, I've never sung in a sermon before, is on my side. Yes, it is. Ooh, there he is. And then he might touch someone else in the street, and then they start singing the song, and you know that. And the movie's silly. It's not a serious treatment of evil or whatever, but I think, like, to me, there's something truthful in that about the way that evil works and the way accusation and blame works and how easily it's spread. And you touch one person, then it's on them. And you touch the next person, it's on them until it's going down the line. And then it just becomes something big and humongous and irrational. One of the things I notice most, like in election season in particular, have you ever noticed that no matter what your persuasion is on those issues, that whatever party's in office at the time, once again, right, they're wrong about everything. When George W. Bush left office, you would have thought he was responsible for the Kennedy assassination. You would have thought that he was responsible for the Holocaust, you would think that everything that ever went wrong in human history was the fault of George W. Bush. There was a poll in Louisiana recently where people in Louisiana were asked who they blame more for the slow response of the government to Katrina, Barack Obama, or George W. Bush, and they said Obama, who was not in office during Katrina. The point is, this runs both ways. It is utterly irrational. It makes no sense. Why does it have such power and such energy? Because accusation... Blame, condemnation is always a powerful thing to be the person who feels like that you're on the side of right. I have got to push this thing forward quicker. But the point I really want to say is this. I think like if, actually they're like 18, but this is the main one for right now. <laughs> Clearly there's a lot going on. I just feel like especially now, you know, there's always, so, if we're not spiritually discerning to what's happening in the climate around us and what it does to us, how it affects us, because I'm talking about this in this big picture way about culture, it affects our relationships. If you talk and think that way about politics, you'll talk and think that way about other relationships too. And you'll blame people irrationally for all of your problems. And you'll never be wrong about anything because they're always right. Because that's the same energy. That's the same force. That's the same power. 
Is that making any kind of sense? No one knows what they think about this. I love it. I love awkwardness in a sermon. I feel like it's so much better when it's awkward. It, thank you for that. It is, there, there's something, it's the same thing. I find sometimes that when I try to push on these issues for people, then they, they just want to tell me why they're right about all this. But no, I see it the way it is. I'm prophetic. I'm enlightened. Peter was enlightened in one way about Jesus, and in the next minute, he was the devil. The way that you discern this is not always about whether or not the words that are coming out somebody's mouth are right. Can they stack up chapter and verse? Because if the spirit of a thing is wrong, then it's wrong, no matter how truthful it might sound. The wrong spirit can say the right thing. Do you believe me? I got scripture for this one. For this, just this one thing. <laughs> Acts chapter 16. I love this story. Verses 16 through 18. One day as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out. Now listen to this. This is a woman who's possessed by a spirit. These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. There, she's saying this about Paul. Let me ask you a question. What is wrong with that sentence? Are these men servants of the Most High God? Yes. Are they proclaiming the way of salvation? Yes. So she must be used of God, right? That must be the Spirit who caused this. Let's read on. She kept doing this for many days, but Paul, very much annoyed because Paul's a discerning person, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. She was right technically in what she said, but the way she was doing it, the tone, the spirit of it was wrong, and it was a distraction. It's another way sometimes I feel like I'm really surfing right now. I don't even care when I'm in this zone. I think another way that sometimes you recognize where the spirit can be off on some things, like she's crying this out in a loud voice. Oh my goodness, there's something about that energy that's so loud. It's so angry. It's so red-faced. Sometimes we can confuse that with anointing. Please forgive the minor blue language. When I grew up in church, if a preacher was really pissed off, we'd be like, oh man, he's anointed. You know he walks with God. Only someone who really knows Jesus would be that mad at the world. Right? Powerful, powerful energy, powerful thing. But the wrong spirit can say the right thing. And if we're going to stay sane in this day and age, if we're going to keep any of our wits about us, we have to become discerning to when even when something might seem to be right technically, there might be some truth in it. But if the spirit of it is wrong, and if overall it, it becomes a distraction from the main things of following Jesus and being the people of God, then there's a problem here. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? So, man, landing this plane. The wrong spirit can say the right thing. My, my punchline for all of this, taking too much time, is that I think what really sets apart the people of God and what really diffuses that spirit of accusation is the very unsexy thing, the thing that, that, that never gets airtime because only the loud, angry voices get that, right? Um, the thing that never gets a lot of press or publicity is gentleness, tenderness. That's always the way of the Spirit. I talk a lot about my mentor, one of the great influences in my life, Margaret Gaines, my spiritual grandmother. I don't have time to tell you all about her. She's 84 now. But she was a missionary to the Palestinians for many years in the West Bank in Abood. Wonderful story. I'll tell you more later. But there was one story I think about so often where she's ministering in this Arab community where oftentimes people... 
experienced hostility towards Americans because they felt like the policy of American government was, was bad for their people, supporting Israel um, proper at their expense. And one day in particular, she tells this story, this was like 20 years ago, where there was some kind of U.S. action that was wildly unpopular in that part of the world. And she was shopping in the village that day in the market where everybody in town was there. And she said a man just came up to her belligerent, red face, and he began to curse her. And he cursed at her, he cursed her parents, he cursed the grave of her parents, cursed everybody he could think of. It was just awful. And she said, everybody in the village is turning, they're just watching. Everybody's out on Saturday, the, the day that everybody shops in the market. And she t- talks about how he just kept on and on and on. There was all this venom and accusation. And then how she just looked him eyeball to eyeball. And she said her heart was broken. She, got kinda, she, she felt tears in her eyes. And she said, I'm not sure what I've done to offend you, but I am so sorry. I am so sorry that you're hurt right now. I'm so sorry that you're feeling what you're feeling. Would you please forgive me for whatever I've done to hurt you? I'm so sorry. I love you. God loves you. I wouldn't do anything in the world to hurt you. And she describes how the man was so bewildered by this that he just ran off. And never will forget what she said to me personally about that. She said that Satan, she said the enemy, never, never knows what to do with gentleness. <laughs> Satan doesn't know how to respond to gentleness. It's the one thing that changes the temperature. Straightening somebody out doesn't change the temperature. They give one argument, you make the right counter argument, doesn't change the climate. But to speak with gentleness, to speak with tenderness, to speak with compassion towards someone that's not speaking towards compassion to you, that's the thing that can change everything. That's the thing that can change culture. I really am convinced, as overly simple as this might sound, I'm so convinced at this point in my life that God is at not work in, in, in accusation and blame and in scapegoating. And I feel like there's so much of that going in the water. In my mind, it's come down to something just this simple. Whereas Satan is described over and over again as the accuser, Jesus in scripture is described as the advocate. Jesus is the one who pleads on our behalf. Jesus is the one who pleads for our mercy. Jesus is not the one who stands up for the innocent. Jesus stands up for the guilty. Aren't you glad that he stands up for the guilty? Jesus is the one who pleads our case. And in any and every situation in my life where there's some kind of conflict, where there's a pull between these forces, here's the question I always ask myself. Where is the opportunity here to be an accuser and where is the opportunity to be an advocate? And what I do with that question is going to determine in that scenario whether or not I'm playing like I'm part of God's team or the devil's team. That's too simple. It is not too simple. You need to hear this. I'm trying to stage an intervention for somebody right now. There, there is always a chance to be the advocate rather than the accuser. I'm not saying that if someone's molesting or there's something awful that there's no sense of justice ever. Of course that those kinds of things exist. Most of the time accusation for us is something much more pedestrian. It's about wounded ego. It's about feeling right. It's about feeling like our team is the winning team. And in those moments, if there's an opportunity to side with the advocate rather than the accuser, that's always where God is working. Where, where, where there's advocacy, where there's pleading for, where there's mercy, where there's compassion, where there's gracious and graceful speech, as opposed to harsh, harsh, accusatory, condemning speech. That's why sometimes in culture right now, you know, just one day of a news cycle and I feel like I need a bath because that's just going on around us like all the time. And, and we have to be centered again, grounded again in that which really matters. One last text, and I promise I'm closing on this, and we are coming to the table, bless God. James chapter three, beginning with verse 13. Just look at these passages, this passage very quickly. 
Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Listen to this. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. There is a kind of wisdom, there's a kind of rationality and reason that might even be wisdom, but it's carnal wisdom. It's demonic wisdom. It's the wisdom of the accuser. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. And I love this. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. Hear it, church. Gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. Do you feel the like sanity just when you hear those words? That the way God's kingdom come is always through peaceful, gentle speech. It always comes through good fruit. It's always peaceable. There's a harvest of righteousness sown in peace for those who make peace. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Whatever side you are of whatever culture war, whatever thing it is that you think that you're doing, Please hear this. God did not call you to be on the right winning side. God called you to be a peacemaker. God called you to be an advocate. God called you to be the gentle, peaceful voice that changes the atmosphere in the room because like Margaret, you walk in the spirit of God. Only prayer makes this possible, makes this kind of humility possible. Please stand up. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.